0: Good morning, church. Today, we are continuing our journey through our Bible reading plan, looking at the book of Mark, chapter eight, and we're coming to the turning point in the book of Mark today. Up until this point, Jesus has been doing miracles and showing off his power and teaching and building up his following, and he's been doing all that he can to keep word of who he is and what he's doing from spreading because he doesn't want people to get the wrong ideas about who he is or to come and follow him for the wrong reasons. And after today's passage, there's gonna be a transition where from now on, Jesus is gonna face increasingly more and more opposition until eventually he is brought to the cross. And in today's passage, we're gonna look at three scenes from the life of Jesus. And Mark narrates these scenes one after another, and each is distinct, but they all work together to paint a picture for us of what it means to know and follow Jesus properly and to see him properly. And what we're gonna see from these stories is that you can see Jesus without seeing him clearly. You can see Jesus without seeing him clearly. We're gonna look at blindness, partial sight, and the miracle of healing. But first, before we look at the passage, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness to us and your love for us. We pray that you would speak to us through your word today. Give us eyes to see who you are and hearts to love you in response to what we see. Thank you that you are so, so good to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we are looking at Mark chapter eight. Mark chapter eight, specifically verses 13 through 33. And today's passage starts with Jesus and his disciples on a boat. So for context, Jesus has just done his second miraculous feeding in the book of Mark. The first one is the feeding of the 5,000. And in the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus takes a few loaves of of bread, a few small fish and miraculously multiplies them. He feeds a crowd of 5,000 people with the food that he produces and He's got more food left over at the end than he started with at the beginning. He travels around, keeps teaching, keeps doing miracles, goes to a different area. Similar things happen at the feeding of the 4,000. He essentially does the same thing, feeds a massive crowd, slightly smaller than the first time, but still huge with just a tiny bit of food and has more left over at the end than he started with. So between these two miracles... Jesus has taken about the amount of food that it would take to give a preschool class their snack for snack time, and with that has fed 9,000 grown adults and had food left over. It's amazing. And immediately after this second miracle, the feeding of the 4,000, Jesus has an encounter with some Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders of his day. And they want him to do a miracle to prove that he's really worth following. And Jesus says, no, no way I'm gonna do that. He's more than willing to do miracles, but he does them to address the needs of people who, who need help, not to impress people, not to entertain people. He's, he's not willing to just act like a circus animal, ready to entertain and please whoever says dance. No, Jesus, He's there to love people. He's there to do God's will. And so he tells these religious leaders when they ask him to do a miracle, he tells them no. He gets on a boat and he leaves. And today's passage picks up with Jesus and the disciples on the boat. And no sooner are they on the boat than the disciples realize they have a problem. And their problem is they forgot to bring bread for their trip. And they realize this problem and then Jesus speaks to them. And he says in verse, chapter eight, verse 15 of Mark, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So the disciples, they're stressed about not having bread. And then Jesus starts saying things about leaven, which is used in baking bread. And the disciples hear what Jesus says, and they start to chat with one another and discuss the fact that they have no bread. And Jesus goes off on them. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? What's going on here? Don't you perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? If you look closely, actually, all of these questions that he's asking them, they're questions used in the Old Testament to rebuke and critique Israel for their unbelief. If you know anything about Israel in the Old Testament, They're constantly being rebuked by God for their lack of faith and their disobedience. So Jesus is using culturally loaded language that the disciples would understand to give them a very, very harsh critique of the unbelief in their hearts. He's basically saying to them, you have just as much trouble believing in me as Old Testament Israel had believing in God. And we know they had a lot of problems believing God in Old Testament Israel. And so Jesus follows this up with a quick review quiz. When I took five pieces of bread and fed 5,000 people with it, how many baskets full of broken pieces were left over? And the disciples say 12. And then Jesus says, okay, and and when I took seven pieces of bread and fed 4,000 people with it, how many baskets full of broken pieces were left over? And they say seven. And Jesus says, do you still not get it? Now you may be wondering what's going on here. Basically Jesus and the disciples, they're having a conversation. They're using the same set of words, bread related words, but they're using them to talk about totally different things. And I mean, us talking with someone else, thinking we're talking about the same thing, but actually talking about different things, That happens a bunch. The other day I was with a couple people and I was talking with one of them about running shoes and they turned to the other person and said, this is the thing about running shoes that we're discussing. And when they said that, I realized, no, that's not what I'm discussing. And we clarified it. We laughed about it because it's not a big deal. It happens all the time. It's usually not a big deal. But Jesus, when he and the disciples have this misunderstanding, he doesn't laugh about it he doesn't brush it off as not a big deal. Why is that? Well, let's look at the passage. Jesus and the disciples, they're both talking about bread or topics related to bread. But when Jesus talks about leaven or yeast, he's using it as a metaphor to try to teach the disciples a lesson. While the disciples are talking about bread literally because they're stressed out and afraid that they're going to starve. See, Jesus, right after getting in the boat, he tells them, watch out. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And remember, they're getting in the boat to get away from the Pharisees. And so what does Jesus mean when he says this? In our world, we don't think much about yeast or leaven. We, we have this little powder that we can buy from the store that if we're baking bread, we can just sprinkle it on and it makes the bread rise pretty quickly. But in the ancient world, that's not how yeast or leaven worked. Their bread, which was pretty much all homemade because you didn't really have grocery stores you could go to or bakeries where you could just get it, it was more like modern day sourdough. So when you baked bread, you didn't have this yeast powder that you could sprinkle on. No, the yeast grew naturally in the dough. And so when you were mixing together your dough for your bread, you would separate out some of the dough. You would mix in some ingredients to keep it fed for the coming week. And then you would store it carefully so that next week you could use that as your starter to get the leaven into the new loaf of bread. And the dough that you separate out, that contains the natural yeast that's gonna make the bread rise. But here's the problem. As anyone who has ever made sourdough before or fermented anything before knows, this can go very, very wrong. If your leaven isn't stored properly, if your starter isn't stored properly or fed properly, it can start to grow bad bacteria like E. coli that can make you sick or can kill you. And if you take some corrupted starter that has that bad bacteria in it and you mix it in with the ingredients for a fresh loaf of bread, what's gonna happen is the dangerous bacteria in the starter is gonna spread to the whole loaf of bread. The whole loaf of bread is gonna become bad and dangerous to eat. And Jesus is telling the disciples here, when he says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod, he's saying there's something about the way the Jewish religious leaders, that's the Pharisees and the Jewish government officials, that's Herod, have responded to Jesus. That is dangerous and deadly. And he's telling the disciples, you need to watch out because if you don't watch out the wrong response that the Pharisees and Herod had can spread and grow in your own hearts just like this bad bacteria grows and spreads through a loaf of bread. And what is this wrong response? Well, it's refusing to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. It's refusing to believe that Jesus can do what he says he can do. It's refusing to have faith in Jesus. Jesus is telling the disciples, you need to be careful because it's so important to trust me and it's so easy to get dragged away from trusting me. And Jesus, he's teaching the disciples this important lesson about how important it is for them to trust him and respond properly to him. And as he's doing this, what are they talking about? We don't have bread. We're going to go hungry. We're going to starve. This isn't good. What are we going to do? And notice in verse 16, who they're talking to about this one another. They're on the boat with Jesus, the man who has taken tiny amounts of bread and fed massive crowds of thousands of people. And they're with him, but they are stressed and they're anxious and they're afraid and they're complaining about their hunger and their fear to everyone on the boat except him. They're doing exactly what Jesus is warning them not to do. They're, they're responding to Jesus in a similar way to the Pharisees and Herod. They're refusing to dress, trust Jesus. They're refusing or failing to see Jesus for who he is. The disciples at this moment are spiritually blind. Yes, they're in the boat with Jesus. Yes, they're staring him in the face, but they at the moment as they stare him in the face, they're completely incapable of seeing who he truly is. And this is why Jesus rebukes the disciples because he wants them to open their eyes and see who is with them on the boat. He's so powerful. They don't need to be stressed. They don't need to be afraid. And notice the danger here. The disciples, they are with Jesus, they've left everything, their livelihood, their families, their friends, their homes, everything, they've left it behind to be with him. And if you do that, if you leave everything behind to be with Jesus, how easy is it to assume that because you're physically with him, you must be automatically aligned with him and what he's doing in the world? It would be so easy, right? But Jesus is showing them, look, you're not automatically aligned with me and my purpose and my mission, just because you're physically with me. It's there's a danger. You can be with him for years and still completely miss out on seeing who he is. If you don't believe that's true, check out what happened to Judas. He spends three years with Jesus and still at the end totally misses out on seeing who Jesus is. And Jesus is saying, look, you're right here. You're staring me in the face, but you are completely blind. Be careful. He's saying, instead of staying blind, use your proximity to me, your closeness to me, to get to know me or else you're gonna stay blind forever. And in the same way for us today, it's possible for us to be near Jesus and his people to come to church regularly and still be spiritually blind. What we need, what you and I need is not just to be spirit, not just to be near Jesus and his people physically coming to church, going to Bible studies. Yes, that's important. We, it's a good thing for us to do that, but we need more than that. If we're truly going to follow Jesus properly, we need that physical nearness to translate into a life giving relationship with Jesus that sees him clearly, that knows who he is, and that trusts him with our struggles. We need to get to know him and to develop our own faith in him. And at this point, the disciples don't have that yet because they are spiritually blind. But thankfully, they don't stay blind. And that's what our third story in today's passage shows us, is a key step in their process of gaining spiritual sight. So let's look at partial sight. And for the moment, let's skip over verses 22 through 26 and jump down to verse 27. Jesus here again, he's with the disciples. They're not on a boat anymore. They're walking now. And Jesus asks his disciples two questions. The first one is one that feels relatively safe for the disciples to answer. It's in verse 27. Who do people say that I am? Now this one, it's safe because you can just repeat what everyone else is saying. If you get it wrong, it's not what I think. It's just, I'm just saying what everyone else thinks. And so the disciples say, you know, some people think that you're John the Baptist, some think you're Elijah, some think you're one of the prophets, and Jesus doesn't comment on that answer, but just jumps straight into question number two. But who do you say that I am? Now this is the scary question because To answer this question requires risk and vulnerability. If you get it wrong, you you have nowhere to hide. You can't say, I'm just repeating other people's answers. You're answering for yourself, not just for other people. And we can see, based on the disciples' response, that they're starting to see or perceive who Jesus is, because Peter answers him absolutely correctly. He says in verse 29, You are the Christ, and he's right, and that's awesome, but on another level, he couldn't be more wrong. See, immediately after Peter says, you are the Christ, it says in verse 31, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again, and he said this plainly. Now what's the problem here? The problem is when Peter says, you are the Christ, he has a very specific picture in his mind of what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. See the Christ, or to use Old Testament language, the Messiah was someone God had promised to send to rescue his people. The Old Testament, it's full of prophecies and promises of the Messiah. The Messiah is gonna be a conqueror. He's gonna be a ruler who's gonna overthrow the other nations that are oppressing Israel. He's going to restore Israel to a place of prominence in the world. He's going to rule over all the nations with goodness and justice forever. And he's going to make everything in the world right and the way that it's supposed to be. And so when Peter says, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. He's saying, you are a winner. You are a conqueror. You are a king. And yes, every good Jew knew that there were passages in the Old Testament that talk about some suffering servant of God, but no one in Jesus' day thought that that person and the Messiah were the same. They're just too different. And when Jesus says, yes, I'm the Christ, and that means that I need to suffer and die, he's essentially saying, Peter, you got my job title right but the job description that you have written for that position is totally wrong. And Peter gets angry when Jesus said this, so angry that he pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him. And the word rebuke here in this passage is actually a word that's sometimes used to refer to what happens when demons are cast out. So Peter hears Jesus say, I'm gonna die. Peter is like, that is a lie straight, from the mouth of Satan. And he responds as strongly as he can against it to try and fix Jesus' perspective, to try and get Jesus back on the right path of who the Messiah is supposed to be and what the Christ is supposed to do. And Jesus turns right back and rebukes Peter. He does the same thing to Peter that Peter is doing to him. Jesus says, no, my understanding of my role doesn't come from Satan, but your response to it does. He says, get behind me, Satan. So what's the takeaway from this story? Well, on the positive side, there's, there's progress. The disciples genuinely see who Jesus is. He's the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one sent from God, which is significant progress in their understanding of him. They're not blind anymore. That's worth celebrating mark doesn't record this for us but in matthew he says when peter tells jesus you are the christ jesus responds by saying blessed are you peter for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my father who is in heaven that's matthew chapter 16 verse 17. jesus celebrates the fact that the disciples are beginning to see who he really is and and he tells them even understanding this much that's a gift from God. But as we can see just a couple verses later, their vision of who he is, is far, far from clear. It reminds me of these puzzles that I used to like when I was a kid. Maybe you've seen them. They're called magic eye puzzles. Have you ever seen these before? So in a magic eye puzzle, you have a picture. It has a repeating pattern or design on it. Like, like this picture I'm holding up here. And if you don't know what to look for, you'd probably assume this pattern is the whole picture. But if you know how to look at the picture the right way, usually you have to sort of cross your eyes and try to look through it a little bit, a different 3d picture appears to you. So in this picture, there's a shark if you know how to look at it properly. So on the boat, when the disciples are on the boat with Jesus, And they, they look at him and don't realize he's the provider who can do the miracle. We don't need to worry about the bread. They're essentially looking and seeing a blank screen here at this moment. They can see this pattern, but they still can't wrap their minds around the idea that there could be a deeper, truer, clearer picture beneath the pattern that they're seeing on their surface. Their eyes have been open. They can see there's something there. They can see who he is, but their vision is still blurry and incomplete. And again, as we can see when Peter rebukes Jesus, it's a problem that they can't see clearly who Jesus is. But the bigger problem is actually they think they can see perfectly. They, they can't see clearly, but they think that they can. And that's dangerous because if you know you can't see clearly, you set up safeguards to protect yourself and to protect the other people around you from being hurt by your lack of good vision but if you think you can see clearly you don't put up those safeguards you you actually put yourself and everyone around you in danger and the disciples because they can see a little bit but think they can see everything are acting in harmful and dangerous ways that are opposing God's mission and the work of Jesus. And I don't know how you feel when you read this story I think, one response that can be easy for us in our day and age is to just be shocked by the disciples. How can you so easily fail again and again and again to see Jesus clearly? And if you feel that way, I want to invite you to take a step back and examine your own life because the reality is we all do this a lot. We all have times where either we're completely spiritually blind, or where we can see glimpses, true, real, clear glimpses of who God is and who Jesus is, but they're incomplete. And so we respond improperly to him. You know, I, I think one way we do this sometimes is by taking one Bible verse or a handful of Bible verses and trying to build our whole understanding of who God is around that chosen verse or those chosen verses without taking the rest of the Bible into consideration. I realized myself doing this this week, actually, I felt like I was having trouble feeling joy. And so I had a talk with God and I was like, hey God, your word says the fruit of the spirit is joy. And Nehemiah says the joy of the Lord is my strength. And there are lots of Psalms about how you bring us joy. And you say that everyone who trusts in you has the Holy Spirit in you, I trust in you. So where is this joy that your word promises to me? And on one hand, I think the response of, Hey, I'm struggling. I'm going to bring this to God. I think that's a good response. I think that's healthy when we're struggling to bring it directly to God. I think that's good. On another level, I'm building my picture of who I believe God is and what I expect him to do based on his word and what he says about himself in his word, which also is good. But on another level, I'm failing to see clearly who God is and how he is working. And why is that? Well, it's because I'm choosing to emphasize certain passages at the expense of others. See, if you look at the book of James, James chapter one, verse two says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. See, what James is saying here is, yes, joy is a gift from God's spirit, but, As a Christian, I also have a responsibility to to choose joy in tough times. Choosing to have joy in hard times is actually a step of obedience that God commands me to take. And if I'm ignoring my step of obedience because I'm so focused on asking God to do something for me, then I'm, yes, I'm seeing him, but I'm not seeing him clearly. James also goes on to say the reason we can count it all joy when we suffer is because God uses our trials to make us perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And if my response to, to hard times and trials is to just complain to God rather than to actively choose joy, then I'm actually choosing to blind myself to the ways that he's at work in my life in the midst of my discomfort and trials. I'm being like the disciples here. I'm I'm having a partial vision of who God is that's based on his word and partially accurate, but it's incomplete. And because it's incomplete, it's dangerous to me if I try to act in a way that sees it as complete. Can you relate to that? Have you had times where you were suffering, you went to God, but you had a very clear and distinct picture of like God Here is exactly what it means for you to be God right now. If you don't respond to me in this exact way, I I don't want you to respond to me. I want you to do exactly what I want and nothing else. And if that's how you have responded to God, then you and I are actually in the same place as the disciples here. We can see God, but our image of him is skewed by what we want to see rather than being clearly shaped and fully understanding of who he really is. And if you're thinking, Eric, man, when I struggle and I suffer and I have trials, I don't even go to God during my tough times. Then I wanna ask you, have you even reached this point of partial sight yet? Or are you still more like the disciples on the boat in the presence of the one who has all power, but ignoring him in your moment of need. Are you still spiritually blind? Church, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the chosen one of God and seeing him has to start with us recognizing who he is as God's son. But once we see that Jesus is the Christ, that's not enough, we can't just stop there. We have to learn more and more each day what it means for him to be the Christ, what it means for us to respond properly to him as the Christ, and that process, of lear- it's, it's a process of learning to see him more clearly, which brings us to our third story in today's passage, the miraculous healing. So we've looked so far at the two interactions of Jesus and the disciples, where the disciples, they fail to see Jesus clearly for who he is, And interesting, right between these stories, Mark tells us about a miracle that Jesus does. And this is a famous miracle because it's the only time in the entire story of Jesus' life in the gospels where Jesus heals someone, but the healing is not instant. And because of this, a lot of people, when they teach about this miracle, they'll teach it from the perspective of, hey, God heals. He doesn't always heal instantly. So if you're praying for someone and God doesn't heal them right away, just keep on praying because maybe he's going to answer you the second time or the third time or the 20th time. Don't give up praying. And that's true. We should keep praying for people even if God doesn't heal them instantly. But it's also not the main thing that Mark is trying to show us in this story. No, this miracle, it's a commentary on the passages around it that we've just been looking at. See on either side of this miracle, the disciples fail to see clearly who Jesus is. First, they're totally blind to his identity and power. Second, they have this partial sight where they can see, yes, you're the Messiah, but I don't get what that means. And so they respond to him wrong still. And those stories leave us with some important questions. Is there any hope? for the disciples to ever see Jesus clearly? If so, where does that hope come from? And what does that mean for us? And these are the questions that this miracle story is designed to answer. So what's the miracle? Well, Jesus comes into a town, the people bring him a blind man and say, touch him so that he can be healed. Jesus brings the man outside of the town. He spits on his eyes, lays his hand on him, and says, do you see anything? And the man's like, kind of, I'm not totally blind anymore. I can see some stuff, but I can't really tell the difference between people and trees and no one in their right mind would ever confidently give me a driver's license. So I'm not quite there yet. And so Jesus lays his hands on the man's eyes again. And when the man opens his eyes, he has perfect twenty twenty vision, totally healed right away. Now, if we take this story and we compare it with what we've just been looking at about the disciples and about ourselves, let's go back and ask our questions. Is there any hope for the disciples to ever see Jesus clearly? Well, from a human perspective, no, just like there was no hope for this man to see anything, but our world is not limited to the human perspective the touch of Jesus accomplished for this man, what is impossible by any human standards. And in the same way, from a human perspective, there's no hope for the disciples to see Jesus clearly. Their hearts are hardened by sin. They're fixated on trying to fit Jesus into the boxes and categories that they already have for who he should be. But what's true for the blind man is also true for the disciples. The world isn't limited to the human perspective. There's hope for them, even though it appears there shouldn't be any. And where does this hope come from? Well, it doesn't come from any human or earthly power. There isn't any power in themselves that they can pull up from within themselves to make themselves see clearly. There's no self-help class or book club that they can join that's gonna give them all the right answers. No, they need supernatural, divine interaction. They need the touch of Jesus to perform a miracle in their lives. Just like this man was healed by the touch of Jesus, the presence and work of Jesus in the disciples lives is the only hope they ever have of seeing him clearly and accurately. And just like this man's healing, the disciples learning to see Jesus clearly, it won't happen all at once. It's going to be a process happening in bits and pieces. They'll have their eyes open here. They'll catch a clearer glimpse of who Jesus is there, but it's not until the ultimate miracle of the cross and resurrection that they finally understand who Jesus really is. It's going to take Jesus doing a miracle for the disciples to see him clearly. And so what does that mean for us? Well, just like the blind man and the disciples, we need Jesus to do a miracle for us if we're going to see him clearly. Our hearts from birth are rebellious against God. They naturally resist him. We don't want God to be God. We don't want Jesus to be God because we want to be God. And if Jesus is God, then we have to listen to him and orient our lives around him. And and we hate being out of control of our lives and giving that control to someone else. We're on our own, we are spiritually dead and we're spiritually blind. On our own power, we cannot see Jesus as he is and by our own power, we cannot change our hearts. But God is a God of miracles. God is a God who brings life to the dead. God is a God who opens blind eyes. Just like the disciples, we can have hope of seeing Jesus clearly because Jesus is still at work in our world and he is still at work in our lives. He's paid the price for our sin on the cross. He has paid the price for our eyes to be open so that we can see him. And yeah, like the blind man and like with the disciples, it's gonna be a process. This process starts with faith, believing who Jesus is, who he says he is, and reorienting our lives around that truth. And the process will never be complete in this lifetime. It will continue. We'll be able to see him more and more clearly if we're staying with him and following him, but it's not until we're actually in his presence that we're going to be able to finally see him perfectly clearly for who he is. But God promises for those who love him, we will see him clearly one day. And first John chapter three, verse two tells us that on the day Jesus appears and, and when we see him clearly, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And so until that day we need to live with confidence clinging to what he has revealed. We need to live with humility, continuing to admit we can't see everything clearly right now. And we need to live with faith to remain with him, to come back to him again and again so he can continue to touch us and give us clearer and clearer sight of who he is. So church, let me ask you, can you see Jesus? Are you like the disciples on the boat, physically close to Jesus, but totally blind to his work and power in your life? Are you like the disciples on the road, seeing a little bit of the reality of who he is, but unable to see him clearly? Or are you like the blind man coming back to Jesus, repeated touch so that he can heal your failing vision? Church, will never see Jesus perfectly clearly in this lifetime, but Jesus is always there. He's always inviting us to, to draw near for another touch so we can see him more clearly each and every day. Will you come to him and let him heal you today so that you can see him more clearly? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your healing touch. We thank you for your miraculous power. We thank you that you want us to know you and we pray that you would give us hearts that can see you clearly, more clearly each day. Hearts that submit to you, hearts that trust you, hearts that come back to you again and again and again for your healing and your touch and your work. God, we love you, but help us to to love you more. In Jesus' name. Amen.